0: Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in fact driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space.
1: Dave, welcome back to the uh, podcast. I feel like it's been a little while. Uh, it has.
0: It has been a been, been a minute, as the kids would say.
1: <laughs> All right. So, uh, you, you wrote what I thought was seriously one of the best pieces I've read in a while last week. It was titled "The Ethics of Indexing Redux," and as I noted at the top, uh, th- this followed some tweets from uh, Elon Musk and, and Kathy Wood who were voicing concerns over the growth of passive and its impact on uh, market function and, and proxy voting, all of the stuff, you and I have covered ad nauseum, and I feel like mostly shot down over the years, right? Yeah. But but this piece you wrote, I, I felt like you came at this topic from a bit of a different angle in that you focused on flows, right, where new money is going versus just looking at the sheer percentage of assets in, uh, in passive but, but let me ask you this before we, uh, we get too deep here. W- was the motivation for writing this piece, those tweets that I mentioned from Kathy and Elon and some of the other stuff in the media this year, or was there another reason you uh, dove into this?
0: Well, there's sort of two things going on at once. So um, obviously, it's always great when you have a little bit of a news hook, like, you know, Elon Musk saying just about anything seems to be news these days. And so so that obviously uh, creates a nice little hook for it. But at the same time, there has been a bunch of really interesting and quite novel research done in the last year on this issue about uh, the the impact of passive flows the and how price discovery is really working in indexes uh and and i thought it was worth revisiting some of that and when i say recent uh, you know the paper that that we'll be talking about here the first draft of it was only published i think in june last year it's still being updated so it's sort of evolving in real time and then there's another uh sort of a companion piece and and numerous uh sort of academic articles sort of already critiquing and trying to understand it. So there is some new information or at least some new analysis about the impact of passive flows passive flows on markets. Uh, and at the same time, obviously, with the markets going down as they have been and volatility up, everybody's looking for a scapegoat. So, uh, you know, everybody's always pointing a finger at something. So pointing a finger at passive, yet another reason to take a, take a fresh look.
1: All right. So let me do this. Let me uh, set the table and then we'll get into all of this. And the the bottom line is, in your piece, you set out to explore three key questions. And those three questions were, number one, is the current dominance of passive strategies in flows? And it flows, impacting how markets function. Uh, Number two, if so, is it possible to determine how? Like in a way that uh, might influence decisions we make as investors. And then the third question was, does pooled ownership, uh, so mutual funds, ETFs, uh, closed-in funds, do do they create any winners or losers in a way that isn't representative of that ownership? And uh, again, obviously a lot here. What I thought I would do, I'm just going to uh, open this up to you and we'll see where this goes, which I think could be anywhere with you and I. But but let, let's just start high level. What did you find as you sought out answers to these three questions?
0: Well, so so I should let, let me let me back up a second here and and sort of point to the specific paper we're talking about because it's something I think um, the average financial advisor probably should be paying attention to. So this is a piece uh, by two gentlemen Gabay, G B G A B A I X and Koijen, K O I J E N. Um, at the uh, NBER, National uh, Bureau of Economic Research, along with a whole raft of folks from Harvard and Chicago Booth. Um, so like a, a real heavy hitters group um, addressing the issue of how do flows impact prices? The way they approached this was to ask the question mathematically, um, is there, you know, when a when million dollars shows up in the market, does it matter how? Does it matter if that million dollars is one trade or a hundred trades? Does it matter if that million dollars is going into one stock? we or an index of stocks, and they, you know, I won't, I won't belabor it. But you go through the entire paper, and I think it has held up to a lot of peer review and some sort of critical articles as well. What they discover um, is that, as opposed to what you would expect from the efficient market hypothesis, hypothesis, which is that that incremental million dollars shouldn't move prices all that much on their own, absent any fundamental change in the stock. Uh, what they actually find is that pretty much algorithmically, a million dollars going Going into Tesla makes Tesla's market cap go up, go up by a million dollars, uh, meaning that there's effectively no selling in that process, if that makes sense, meaning the the, the, the flow itself is baking in the value of its trade. More interestingly, what they find is when you then apply that to, say, a basket of 500 stocks, i.e. any index creation, uh, it actually is five times as impactful, meaning a million dollars showing up in SPY makes the S&P 500 go up by five million dollars. So it's almost a money multiplier effect that I don't want to use. It's not quite. It's not really the same math, but it acts as an inelasticity multiplier on how flows impact prices. It's been very controversial. Obviously, there are a lot of folks out there who believe that prices should only move with fundamentals. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting question, but if true, and sort of mathematically, it certainly appears to be true, it has a lot of implications for things we think we know about the markets. Um, you know, it, it's certainly some of the math behind the relentless bid, right? Because this flow is largely driven by retirement savings. Um, and if those folks are showing up into the market as regular buyers, then you expect that to just keep pushing prices up over and over again uh, at, at a greater impact than you might expect. Um, So that's that's the sort of the nutshell version of it. Um, It's got a lot of people's hair on fire because it does seem to violate the efficient markets hypothesis. But I think I think most rational people who've been in the market kind of think the efficient markets hypothesis has been a pretty unproven hypothesis for a long time. It explains some, but definitely not all of what we see in markets.
1: With the example that you just walked through with a million dollars coming into a single stock versus going into, uh, say, an equity index. Just in layman's terms, what, what is the rationale in the paper for why there is a higher multiplier, uh, for the money going into an index fund? What, why is that?
0: Well, so the, so causally, it's difficult to say this is the specific reason. There are a couple of explanations that you can put in there. The simplest one is if you're a market maker and you have to sell somebody your Tesla that you have in inventory in order to make a trade happen, that is an easier thing to do in terms of your inventory management and your liquidity across your book than to do that with 500 stocks all at once, right? Because it, to some extent, you're always going to be hamstrung by the least liquid, the thing you have the less, the least of in that basket of 500 stocks. So there is is some argument to be made there that because you are sort of monolithically requiring an irreplaceable asset, um, that has more value than just say, I want to buy Ford because a lot of people, certainly a lot of investors would say, okay, there are a lot of replacements for Ford. If I'm running a value proposition fund or a dividend fund, there are a lot of things that you can substitute for Ford to get similar exposure. It's very difficult to say you can find a, substitute, say, for the top 1000 stocks in the United States. You can't just say, okay, well, I'll just go buy the DAX. That's not the same. Uh, However, you know, a a small basket of three or four stocks that are all uh, in tech look can often look a lot like any other basket of three or four stocks in tech if you construct them that way.
1: So if you're an advisor or an investor out there, and and you started heading down this path a little bit, what are some of the potential implications? Here, let's assume that the math here all works out, that this is all correct, this is true in the markets. What what, what does this mean to investors? Well,
0: so, and this is, I think, an important point. I'm approaching this not from the perspective of something is wrong, we should do something. And a lot of people, when they engage in this conversation, active versus passive, that's the immediate approach. That like somehow we're all trying to get rid of passive managers or something like that, or we're trying to pass laws and change regs. I just don't think those things are realistic. So I'm just interested in trying to understand how the world actually works. So... The, the 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 paper here and the, some of the, the, the subsequent dialogue would suggest that if this is true, then it means the characteristics of markets are a little bit different than we might expect, right? So we now, if this is true, that means that we have a reason to expect that long-term flows will continue to support markets regardless of short-term volatility. That's the relentless bid argument, right? The money flowing in continuously into 401k plans until it doesn't, right? That's the other hand- the hiccup on this is this works in both directions. So when we reach the sort of mythical drawdown period where more money is flowing out of equities because baby boomers are selling to buy bonds than millennials are putting into the 401k market, this can invert and all of a sudden you have this negative flow impact on the same thing. So it means that we need to be careful of those tipping points and that when you get to either side of that tipping point, either ramping up into it or ramping down, Markets will move more than we might otherwise expect, and that feels very true to me. I think we all have had that sense of like, you know, golly, the VIX is only 25, but boy, it seems like it's moving a lot. That's true, right? That's the market we're in right now. Um, so I think that acknowledgement that we live in this tailwind market with higher potential volatility and higher tails than we might expect, I think that feels true to a lot of investors. And the answer to what you do with that in a portfolio is likely add convexity, right? Add things in your portfolio that either give either sort of have the effect of kicking in when the market goes way down or kicking in when the market goes way up.
1: You know, I always like to play a devil's advocate on these types of topics. So let let me hit you with a couple of uh, alternative views. And maybe you agree with some of these. But let's start with with passive overall, because the thrust of the discussion that's out there in the public is on passive investing. Clearly, that was threaded through your piece. And if the real issue here is that there is this constant bid in the market, the, the relentless bid, because people have to save for retirement. I'm curious why passive investing is viewed as the culprit. Because to me, if the thought is, well, look, investors have to put money to work in stocks and bonds, right? That, that's not a passive issue. That's just a, 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 an investing issue. Yeah, so the, the passive... Right, The same. I was just going to say the same thing would be happening, except money would be going into active funds, which, by the way, in aggregate, own all of the same stuff as passive funds. So I, why does passive seem to be in the crosshairs?
0: Yeah. So, for a couple of reasons, one is we've created a, a tax and legal system that effectively forces people into passive funds, um, and I, I don't mean that in like a, a, a negative, like people are forced to do a thing they don't want to do. We've created safe harbors for corporations who we have told to basically have to provide for their employees' retirement. And those safe harbors are all based around passives, right? They're all based around target date funds. Now, could somebody run an actively managed target date fund? Sure, maybe they exist. I've never seen one, right? Um, But it's not a particularly efficient way to run something, but you could, so yes. Um, But the, the, the Qualified Default Investment Alternative uh, which, you know, it sort of came out of the, the GFC, um, that really, I think, embedded passive into the ecosystem in a way that it hadn't been before. It had already been happening. Obviously, the vast majority of 401k plans already had passive options, and those were the ones that were being overwhelmingly used for good reason. Right? I mean, we all know the math, right? There's a very good reason. Um, so, so that's the reason that I think passive is in the crosshairs is because we kind of baked it into the system.
1: Okay, well, then let, let me take this approach. So even for investors who are on autopilot, t- to your point, and they're uh, you know, putting money to work and, and passive funds in their 401k, they're still making a conscious decision to invest, right? They they don't have mm-hmm. to put that money into the market. And in of fact, course. I can tell you as an advisor, um, some people simply don't want to put money to work when markets are acting one way or another. I, I've seen that here recently. I'm not saying that's a good decision, sure. but right, it's a behavioral thing. And so my point is, If investors are putting money to work, um, isn't that because they want to own stocks? And if they want to own stocks in aggregate, well, guess what? Stocks are going to go up, right?
0: It's not that it's alarming. It's that, it's that it runs counter to, uh, you know, 100 years of academic finance, right? So, the uh, yes, on the one hand, uh, you know, I, I get into this argument with Barry Ritholtz all the time. He's like, oh, shockingly, things go up when everybody wants to buy. Yeah, it is that simple. However, the efficient market hypothesis would tell you that is not why stocks go up in value. Stocks go up in value in relation to their fundamentals. And what we're saying here is there's a new fundamental, which is presence has value meaning being in the public markets and therefore being available as a target for retirement money Itself has value. That's why flow matters. Now we can say, like you can relate that back to fundamentals. You can say that that means well the average PE of the S and P five hundred should therefore be twenty two instead of sixteen because there are all these other use cases for the asset known as an index of stocks. Um, So that is that is an absolutely valid critique or, I guess, conclusion to build off this, which is, yeah, maybe the markets should be more expensive now than they were in a pre-retirement savings market, right? In a 1986 market, uh, you know, the PE should be higher. We should be valuing companies for a higher level than their fundamentals suggest. That's certainly what the markets have looked like lately.
1: In terms of the uh, potential for bigger swings in the market, this convexity, these, these fatter tails, I mentioned at the top, you, you know, Dave, I, I've been thinking a lot about this topic over the past several months just because there has been a lot more in the media about passive. And I, I want to approach this from a, a, a balanced perspective, right? I don't want to just assume because overall, I think that passive is a good solution for most investors. That doesn't mean there aren't uh, negative implications to that. And I don't know if you saw my, uh, my tweet recently, but uh, I, I have something that I'm now calling Nate's hyper-efficient market hypothesis, but it, it sounds a lot like what you're hitting on. And simply put, the more I thought about this, I, I agree that the growth of passive is causing bigger swings in stocks, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. So, so, so to me, since more investors are sitting on the sidelines in passive funds, which means they're, they're not trading and they're not adding noise and, and friction to the market. That means active managers can more easily set prices in in my mind, right? Because there are fewer competing forces for them to move a security to what they believe is fair value. So so, this is, so there's a really interesting
0: secondary paper by this guy named Bouchard who introduces this idea of like the time memory of a trade, meaning like how long the market remembers that a thing happened before we've moved on to new information. Um, I, I think you are correct in the short term, meaning if Tesla blows or blows away earnings, uh, the, the reaction to that will be both more violent and over faster than it would have been 10 years ago or that it would be in the absence of any passive in the market. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. The flip side of that, however, is that, yes, they may be able to say reprice Tesla down 20% because of a bad earnings call or something like that. However, tomorrow, more money shows up to buy it. So the ability for a sustained repricing of something, I think, is impacted. Now, there hasn't been the work done yet that I've read that really gets in and examines that at the microstructure level. I think that work is just starting to be done. The last paper I read that was really good on this was like February. So like this is very current academic finance um, but yeah I think I think that that is a reasonable conclusion that that with fewer people all effectively owning Tesla for the same active reason right now it will respond more violently when news hits that one stock
1: in terms of a um, quote unquote longer term solution here I mean my my understanding of how you view uh what investors should be doing is that I think you believe passive works, right? That that we know the vast yeah. majority of active managers underperform as a whole. Even the ones who do outperform in any given year, they don't tend to have any uh, persistency to that performance. They can't replicate outperformance year after year. And so despite these various influences that passive may be having on the markets, my, my understanding is you don't really recommend investors do anything differently at this point. And, and then I'll, I'll add to that, you know, clearly the biggest takeaway in your article was that this decision we've made as a country to outsource retirement to individuals where they are responsible for their 401k and, and, and IRAs, and they're basically forced to invest in the markets. And because of the safe harbor and what you're describing earlier, a lot of those plans are being stuffed with with passive funds. I, I, I guess what I'm getting at, I mean, is there a solution here? Because I don't see this changing. I think more people are going to continue to put money in their 401ks, and they're going to continue to allocate I, yeah. to passive
0: Let me me respond by denying the question. I'm not sure this is something that needs a solution. I'm not actually sure we're identifying a problem that necessarily needs to be fixed any more than the efficient market hypothesis was identifying a problem, right? It was identifying a way the market seemed to work, just like the Black-Scholes model was identifying a way options seemed to trade until we got better models and moved on. What I think is happening is we're getting a better model of how prices actually are set in markets and the impact of the flows from, you know, from all sources, but particularly into indexing is impacting those prices. So I don't think it's a problem that needs to be solved. I think it's reasonable for policymakers to ask questions about whether or not we should or shouldn't be incentivizing certain kinds of asset management. And I think it's reasonable to ask the question about what are the implications for us having effectively uh, you know, privatized the retirement system for this country, that implies that the, co- the, the government is going to have to backstop markets in a deeper way than we might have expected otherwise, um, because more and more actual sort of suffering is going to result to the average American voter uh, in a down market because we are now an ownership society. We have just this huge investment in the market as a country.
1: Well, it's such an interesting uh, topic. I I absolutely love when you dig into things like this. And for listeners, go read the piece if you haven't already. It's posted at uh, ETFtrends.com. Dave, real quick before I let you go, uh, I will be talking uh, some crypto here during the rest of the podcast. I I just have to ask you, do you have any quick thoughts on what we've uh, witnessed here recently? There's been a lot, but it's been a bloodbath overall. Any quick takeaways?
0: I guess my only takeaway is uh, a lot of crypto falls into the bucket of what I would call psychological commodities. You and I have talked about that before, meaning it's worth what people are willing to pay for it. That doesn't mean that it's useless and has no value. Just look at gold, which you know the the original psychological commodity. Um, so what we've seen is a lot of repricing around that based on investor psychology, which is utterly predictable and completely impossible to time. Um, and then the you know every time this happens, what what should emerge, hopefully, is a higher and higher value placed on utility in the space. Uh, And so I think what you see is crypto getting stronger out of this over the next year or two with a lot of folks getting flushed out, which, you know, this is how cycles work.
1: And so longer term, I mean, are you still optimistic on the space overall? Because I'm seeing a lot out there right now where I feel like a lot of people in traditional finance are, are looking at what happened, say, with Luna and, and Terra and, and, and how uh, significantly some of these cryptos have declined and, and saying, see, I told you, the whole thing's a Ponzi scheme, uh, right, that there's no long-term uh, utility to what you were just saying. I mean, are, are you still optimistic on the space overall longer term w- without oh, yeah. pointing to specific tokens or coins?
0: yeah, yeah, I, I I mean, I am optimistic uh, I am optimistic about it as the the innovation hotbed for finance for the next ten years. Um absolutely. Does that mean the value of anything in it is going to go up? I have no idea. I don't know whether Bitcoin could sit at thirty grand for the rest of my life. i have I'm not going to try to make a prediction on that. I think that we're still learning a lot in the decentralized finance sandbox, and I still think it's full of razor blades.
1: Dave, fantastic stuff as always. Uh, Certainly appreciate it. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nate. That was Dave Nottig, financial futurist at ETF Trends and ETF Database.